Hi everyone, and welcome to Vocal Arts, the podcast that explores the world of professional voice artists. My name is Peter Barber, and I'll be your guide along this path of vocal performance. What's that? <laughs> oh, why am I qualified to host this show? Well, for starters, I got my master's degree in, you guessed it, vocal arts and performance from the University of Southern California. I trained one-on-one -on -one with world-class singers and learned all about the physiology and function of the human voice from leading voice scientists. Beyond that, I currently sing opera professionally as a resident artist at the Academy of Vocal Arts. Since quarantine started, I began producing my own a cappella music, from arranging to recording, mixing, and mastering. I've performed in basically every genre from EDM to chamber choir, and with an undergrad major in audio engineering, I can comfortably bridge the gap between live performance and studio recordings. From the grandiose space of a 3,000-seat opera house, to the intimate, soundproof booths used in voiceover. But perhaps most importantly, I'm just a young artist, fascinated by the various careers in vocal performance, and inspired to learn more about them from the best and brightest vocal talent the world has to offer. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And no matter what your involvement is within the world of vocal arts, I hope that here on this podcast, you can both learn something and enjoy. Today's guest is Rod Gilvery. Rod is a professional opera singer, two-time Grammy nominee, actor, and voice teacher, and is acclaimed worldwide in opera, musicals, recitals, and cabaret. He has performed in all the world's music capitals and appears on over 30 recordings. An important part of his 75-role repertoire are the 12 leading roles he has created in new operas. These include David Lang's solo opera, The Loser, with the Los Angeles Opera, and the Metropolitan Opera's production of Thomas Addis's The Exterminating Angel. Despite cancellations due to COVID, Rod has upcoming performances with Renee Fleming, The Metropolitan Opera, and more. Rod is in his 10th year as a professor of vocal arts at the University of Southern California Thornton School of Music in Los Angeles. Outside of the music world, Rod has become a true renaissance man, cultivating the skills of mixology with his full-scale home bar, and he has even learned how to weld and shape metal. Rod was my voice teacher at USC for two years, and it was both a joy and an honor to work with him. Despite being an absolute master of his craft, he wouldn't hesitate to strike up a conversation about a NASA space launch and all the sophisticated science that goes into it. He is truly one of a kind. Please welcome Rod Gilfrey. Welcome to Vocal Arts. good you look even better hey thanks <laughs> <laughs> well uh this is great thank you thank you for coming i'm super excited to have you and just to catch up with you because it's it's been a while since we've actually yeah it has been it. yeah um so for podcast reasons why don't you tell everyone who you are and what okay. you do for a living okay. all right hi i'm rod gilfrey i am peter barber's uh voice professor at usc but he just you know he just finished his master's so he's off into the big new world uh, i'm a professional opera singer i do also do musicals and recitals and cabaret and stuff like that i'm a professor at, at the university of southern california um i'm also an amateur bartender and we'll probably get into all that stuff i hope we do i Pretty really hope we do Great, great, great. Uh, well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about your career first, just because I know a lot of people watching this and listening are going to be musicians and singers. Yeah. So, can you, how about you just give us a rundown about kind of how you started? Let's maybe back around USC time, and then where your career yeah. went from there, and and where you are now. Okay. Well, I I don't think my my path wasn't typical, typical American, young American opera singer, because I didn't do any of the programs. I didn't do any summer pro, well, I did do one summer program at the Music Academy of the West, which I know you are intimately the greatest. familiar with. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, but I didn't do like uh, Marilla program or the Mets program or anything like that. I I um, already had uh, a wife and a child, and I was like, I don't want to I don't want to do these uh, you know any more no more student things. When I finished my master's yeah. at USC in '83, I was like, I'm done. I'm done. No more student. If I don't make it as a professional, then I don't. I'm gonna go out there and do a trial by fire. Just put myself out there and learn. You know, learn by doing. Yeah. So uh, soon after my master's degree, well, not that long. It was a few years after my master's degree. I um, uh, let me back up. Actually, right after my master's degree, I got management. Um, a manager in New York named Taya Disbecker. I think their agency still exists, although she's been gone for a long time. And she was German and um, had a lot of contacts in Europe as well as the United States. But she did primarily concerts which is what I was interested in because I wanted to not be gone all the time. I already had one kid and we were planning on having a couple more. And um, uh, so I thought that the ideal situation would be, no, we didn't have a kid yet, did we? Almost, oh, we had a kid soon after that. Um, I thought the ideal thing would be to do stuff on weekends and come back during the week, you know, yeah, like people who play like people who play concerts, you know, instrumentalists. I, I worked with Midori. She was the at USC for many years, and I talked to her about what she does, and she was just gone on weekends, and she'd go off wherever and play a concert and then come back and teach all week. Perfect. I'm like, I can't do that because operas, you know, we rehearse for at least four weeks. Right. you got to be there. Um, anyway, so I started doing concerts, but I realized that the really high-level concert singers were really successful opera singers. And so I thought I got to I got to make a career in opera. So I um, did an audition tour in Germany and Austria and Switzerland, and um, I got some offers uh, from a couple companies from Frankfurt Opera, uh, Hamburg Opera. And I took the one in Frankfurt, which started actually a year a year later because it was with the incoming intendant uh, Gary Bertini. And so I had another year to sort of get myself together and, you know, plan for the big move. Um, uh, I, that, it was the same time that the Los Angeles Opera had was uh, starting up. Right. And you were there I, right for the start of that. Yeah. Yeah. I was there for the very, the very first uh, season, first night I was there. I sang in all three of their first uh, three productions. And um, what was cool is I got this contract with the L.A. Opera to be very, very, very the smallest of small roles, <laughs> but uh, but they the head of the opera Peter Hemmings he said you should go to Europe you should go there and build your career he was so cool it was so cool it would have been in his best interest to keep me there but he kept on bringing me back he said if you go to Europe I'll bring you back every year for something that's and awesome he kept, he kept to his word and we were over there for seven years and every year I came back wow. to do something and my roles got bigger and bigger until I was doing like title roles and like you know, Barbara Seville and stuff like that. So that was really cool. We finally, we, we moved to, uh, moved to Europe in 1987, went to Frankfurt. We were there for two years. Then I got a contract in Zurich, essentially taking the place that Tom Hampson was vacating there. Wow. Uh, we were there for five years. And um, then at the end of that time, it was like, I was singing pretty much everywhere and it didn't matter where we lived. And there were times where I even came back to California to sing in LA and left my family in Switzerland because now my kids were in school. And right. my wife's like, there's something wrong here. You're going home and I'm staying in a foreign country. What's up with this? <laughs> like, no, so we decided to move back. We moved back in 1994. And um, yeah, it's been great. We moved to Rancho Cucamonga, California. And you're, you've, so you've been there since 94? Since 94. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We moved in across the street from my wife's sister. And her okay. family, which was great because they had kids the same age as ours. And we had three kids by then. And, uh, you know, the cousins just loved being together. It was so worth it to come back to see yeah. those, those cousins playing together. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And, and to have family dinners again. Oh, my God. Uh -huh. it, was, it was fantastic. So did you, after that, did you continue working in Europe or did you mostly yeah. stick with the States? No, it's cool. I, I kept on, it's funny, I didn't have any kind of a commitment from the Zurich Opera, but they kept bringing me back for one or two sh productions a, a year. And uh, now that finally dried up because they changed administrations. I did do two jobs with the new administration, but 
but um, that hasn't, I don't have anything coming up with them. But uh, yeah, that was cool. Uh, it was really great because that was my foothold back in Europe was the, was the, the Zurich opera. And I sang in Vienna, I sang in Hamburg, I sang in, you know, London a few times. And, and so when you, when you were there, were you in the ensembles of those houses? So did you sing a yeah. bunch of roles? So you were in like a fest contract? It was a fest. It started out, well, in, in Germany, in Frankfurt, it definitely was a, a, a typical fest contract where they'd okay. say, okay, you're a lyric baritone, which means you're going to sing, you're going to sing Barbara of Seville and you're going to sing Papageno and you're going to sing, right. you know, uh, all these things. And they said, because this is all your Fach, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but they were understanding when I'd say, I don't think I can sing that. Or maybe this is a little too heavy for me. Or, you know, they'd go, okay, all right, well, we don't want to make you do something you don't want to do. So, you know, work on it with one of our coaches, see how it goes and make a decision. That's okay. great. I, I've, I've heard if you go over there and you're not pretty clear about what you can do and can't do, they'll have you sing everything. Yeah, you know, I didn't experience that. I've heard horror stories about how, you know, I have to, my contract says I have to sing what's in my fach and I can't say it's not in my fach. I can't sing it, but they're making me do it and it's killing me. You know, mm -hmm. that, I've heard of that happening. Um, Frankfurt was an A house and they had a, a very, uh, what can I say? Gary Bertini was Israeli. Now the lady who was sort of the head of the casting and everything, she was German, but she was really cool. Very understanding, very nice. Um, so they had more of an artistic approach to it. Not quite such a administerial kind of, you know, follow the rules kind of approach. That's that was weird though, because uh, about two weeks before my debut in Frankfurt, the opera house burned to the ground. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's an arson well, it was it was uh, it was it was set by a human, but I don't know. They don't know if it was intentionally an arson fire or not. But there was a guy who was sort of camped out in the basement, and he started a fire under the stage, and it got out of hand. I think he probably meant to burn it up. But any in any some case, some guy with a big issue with the opera house, maybe. You know, I don't know. He was a uh, at the time the Berlin Wall was still up, so East and West Germany were still divided, mm. and they had this um, like. Um, prisoner exchange or citizen exchange, whatever, where, you know, the people who wanted to be back in the East who got stuck in the West, I don't know why they'd ever want to go back, but they had, they had this kind of exchange thing. And this guy was under this plan. This guy was brought out of East Germany and was living in Frankfurt, but apparently didn't have a job and it was getting cold. It was like October. Yeah. I think around October or late September. And he found his way under the opera house and made a fire to keep warm or something. I don't know. It was weird. Right under the stage. Something doesn't seem right with the story. Anyway, the whole thing burned up. Wow. Two days before. Yeah. And so a lot of people jumped ship. A lot of my American colleagues who had contracts with the opera house, they're like, I'm out of here. I'm not sticking around. Because it was going to take them weeks and weeks to just figure out what they were going to do with the season. And they would right. take them at least a year or two to rebuild the opera house. Yeah. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, it took them two years and the thing was rebuilt and uh, I never sang in it because it was, oh, yeah, I left before. So I sang, I sang in this little, um, it was what's known as the Städtische Bühnen in Frankfurt. It's a, a little cluster of three stages, the Opera House, the Schauspielhaus and one other small theater. So we took over the next largest theater, which was this black box. I think it's sat about. 1200 people or something like that and then the actors from the schauspielhaus the playhouse they moved into a, a warehouse or an abandoned train station or something like that everybody got moved around and um at first i was kind of relieved by one aspect of that and that's <laughs> that we were going to be premiering this piece called your operas one and two by john cage oh boy and, and oh it boy. was like really experimental it was aleatoric it was crazy it's like <laughs> all of the all of the um all of the things that the singers would sing all of the stage pieces all of the action all the decorations everything was decided at random by applying this random number generator to pages of the dictionary and then they would uh, it would say page you know uh, 642 and they'd go there and then John Cage would read down until he found something he could use like stick. Right. <laughs> and so stick. Oh, we'll use a stick. 
And so I ended up, and then we could choose our own arias uh, from a list of 64 operas in the public domain. And um, so I chose to sing the Toreador song. Oh, and it got, awesome. it got linked up with, it got linked up with uh, uh, a Spanish cow- Mexican cowboy and sticks. And so <laughs> I ended up singing on oh, a headstand. So I ended up singing the Toreador song, partly in a headstand, which was, you ever try to sing on your head, standing on your head? No, thankfully I've never it's had of, to. It's sort of like a recipe for an aneurysm. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, throwing sticks while dressed as a Mexican cowboy. <laughs> any, in any case, we got to the final rehearsals of this. Then the fire happened. That was going to be the big opening of this new of this new administration. The fire happened. And I remember going to the opera house when everything was put out, when they were t- taking everything apart. And they pulled out this massive piece of stage with a crane. And it had this grid on it, this white grid. And the grid was for our blocking. It was like you start at, you enter at A26 and at two minutes and 32 seconds, you move to B3. And then we just moved around. All these positions were also chosen at random by this computer. And there was no conductor. It was just a digital clock. The orchestra played randomly selected pieces of operatic scores that were put together at random. It was crazy. You know, I'm when not sure. When that thing pulled out, I'm like, thank God, I hated this piece. <laughs> I was like, sure. we won't have to do that. But no, the first thing that they rebuilt in this little theater next door was that production. So we ended up doing it. Oh, my God. I was about to say, I don't think the, the house would last after that anyway. No. <laughs> people yeah. over there like, don't people in Europe tend to like the newer productions. I feel like houses do them more often, something more avant-garde and risque. Yeah. Yeah. They tend to, they tend to like that stuff that you don't see hardly ever now in, at least in the German speaking countries, you hardly ever see a traditional production of something. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe so, more okay. in the South. <laughs> Great. So that's some that's some good coverage of your of your opera career. Let's jump over to uh, musical theater. Yeah, we'll, do, we'll like the first half talking about music stuff, and then we'll talk into we'll talk about more fun stuff later. Okay, whatever you want. <laughs> well, I did musicals in high school. That was the first time I did musicals, and I remember actually our church put on musicals, which was weird. There was no religious connection at all, but we had this music director, Gania Trotter, who was still. Uh, she's in the same retirement community as my mom. Um, and she's probably about 90 right now, but she's um, uh, still a friend of ours. Anyway, um, they put on these musicals. We did The Boyfriend, Anything Goes. Uh, we did a couple melodramas like Under the Gaslight. I can't remember what else we did. Um, the Music Man. So I was Harold Hill in The Music Man. And, uh, and then my future wife, Tina, uh, starred in a lot of these things because she was a really great performer, gorgeous uh, young woman, really good voice, good dancer, all that stuff. I did not know. I did not know she performed. Yeah, well, she's a kindergarten teacher now, but she still performs. You know, in a way, it's like a every class is like a performance when, when yeah. you're a kindergarten teacher. I've heard. But, I've yeah, heard. that's how we met. That's how we met doing musicals together. Very cool. And then I then I did uh, a musical called Lil Abner in uh, in high school. And that was when I had my, that was the high, high school production. And it was the first time I actually felt what it was like to, you know, ha- captivate an audience, you know, to have them in, to have them really paying attention and to have them hinging on every word you say, you know, in the dialogue and whatever, yeah. how, to time, how to time a punchline, how to deliver stuff so that they really liked. And I was like, oh, wow, I hadn't planned on doing that for a career, but I, that, this is really cool. This is really cool. Um, and then, then I, I had an incredible, um, music program in high school, our choral program, uh, led by Don Brinegar, who actually is a resident of Rancho Cucamonga has been for a lot of years, um, was just amazing. <laughs> we, we sang on a level that was like a, f- a fourth year collegiate choir. It was just, and I have recordings to reprove it. We're just like, Oh my God, these, we were so good. And I learned so much that I planned on being a music teacher. It was like, yeah, that's what I'm wow. gonna do. My dad was a music teacher. My mom was a, a, a teacher who also had like children's choirs and stuff. So it seemed very natural. Um, 
And then I, when I got into college, I started, I went to Cal State Fullerton here in Southern California, a California State College and started taking voice lessons. And that's when everybody's like, you've, you've got a really good voice. You're going to be a singer, right? I go, no, 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 I'm going to be an educator. They're like, no, you're going to be a singer. No, I'm going to, uh, no, no, I, I don't want that kind of a life, you know, gone too much of the time. I want more stability. And um, so I started doing voice competitions and winning most of them. And they're still like, you're going to be a singer. No, no, I'm not going to be a singer. I'm going to be a, an educator. I'm going to be a high school choir teacher. And then I started down that track and I did a, I did a music education degree. And then I started doing student teaching in, uh, in high schools in local high schools and realized that the program that I had was exceptional and that these other programs were, they paled by comparison and the teachers were not just choir teachers. They'd sometimes have to teach history or, you know, uh, shop, which I didn't mind that, but, um, you know, a lot of other things it's like, they didn't have dedicated music teachers in a lot of these schools because of budget cuts and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, ah, maybe I don't want to do this, you know? Yeah. Handling, yeah. Yeah. Handling a big, class of teenagers who are just goofing off and throwing spit wads and shit I'm just like, like I, don't think, I don't think i want to do this so i i, I went to um uh i went to the music academy of the west uh that summer and i'd gotten married in the meantime to my wife now we just celebrated 40 years 40 years congratulations oh, wow i say congratulations to me thank you very much yeah yeah, that a boy. That a boy. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's that's it's really huge. amazing. Yeah, nobody could come to our big party, but it was still fun. Still very special. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, anyway, so uh, I went to uh, the Music Academy of the West, and I met Marcial Sangue. Ah, yes. He became my my teacher for the next six years, and I was asked to come up there. They were doing a production of Romeo and Juliet, and the guy who was singing the father of Juliet. Uh, got sick. He had some liver problem or whatever, and they asked me urgently if I could come fill in. Already, they'd been in session for ha for a month, and um, I was like, "What is the Music Academy of the West?" I had no idea what this was. And Marcel Sanger called me. Uh, he had a really heavy French accent, and I could barely understand what he was saying. Uh, yes, my dear Rodney, <laughs> if you would uh, consider coming up to uh, Santa Barbara to do the the role of Capulet. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And um, anyway, so I decided to go and uh, I was there for half of their half of their uh, summer and I did that role, started studying with Sanger. And I, it was fascinating. It was so he was such an artist and and a real master of his craft. You know, even his bearing he had this like regal bearing. And he would look down, look down at you. I mean, he was intimidating. He was very sweet, but he could be very intimidating. So I, uh, then I got a scholarship to go to USC to do my master's, just like you. But I Amazing. wasn't a TA. I wasn't a TA. I just got a, a full tuition scholarship and didn't have to work as a TA. That's what we did back then. Don't ask me how. I'm jealous. It hasn't <laughs> happened since. <laughs> but I didn't live on campus. I lived in, we lived in uh, Claremont. And I just drove in, you know, two or three days a week and did my classes. I never did the opera at USC because I took it would take too much time. I did some kind of a like a chamber music class instead that wow. fulfilled the ensemble requirement. You know, I got around a lot of a lot of things. I told my teacher at USC that I wasn't going to study technique with him, which I can't believe I said. I said, "Look, I'm with Charles. I'm with." Uh, Marcel Sanger in Santa Barbara. So I do not want, I, I'm going to take my technique from him. I don't want to listen to technique. He's like, oh, well, okay. I guess we can just do coaching. <laughs> That's pretty, like, pretty generous of him. Generous of him and ballsy of me. I can't believe Yeah, that. Yeah. Crazy. Anyway. Oh, I've, 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 you haven't said a word, man. I, okay. So music, <laughs> how much, I mean, how much classical voice had you done before music Academy? Cause that's obviously, it's not for musical theater. I mean, it's for opera. Oh yeah. We were talking about musical theater. That's what it was. <laughs> doesn't matter where this goes. We're well, let me just go, let me just go on with the musical theater thing. Yeah, yeah. Sure, I continued, sure, sure. I continued to do musicals. LA opera actually put on, um, uh, Oklahoma. 
Uh, oh, wow. Way back when. And it was fantastic. And I was curly, and it's like the most fun I've ever had on stage. Um, they don't do musicals anymore. They didn't since then. That was our last one. But I, I did a lot of musicals. I did um, uh, Carousel down in San Diego. And then I did, uh, in Paris, I did The Sound of Music. And I, I did uh, a couple productions of The Most Happy Fella at Ravinia and one at UCLA. And um, then my big one was I did the national tour of South Pacific um, a few years ago for a whole year. By then I was teaching at USC. And I took a year off to do it and that was cool. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I sort of didn't do musical theater for a long time. I started going straight into opera um, after I got my master's pretty soon after I got an, 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 this agent I described. And then I went to Europe for seven years and so musicals sort of fell by the wayside, although I did operetta, like I did uh, The New Moon in a production in, in New York, the City Center Encores. I did The Merry Widow, like all over the place, L.A., Zurich, um, other places. How so, much has your rep changed since you were my age to what you sing now? In terms of roles. Yeah. My path has been kind of weird. I'm, I don't know. I'm I'm not a like long range planning kind of artist. I'm sort of like, did I get a job today? Anybody going to offer me a job? And then the phone, you know, my agent will call. Oh, so and so wants you to sing something here, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I could do that. You know, it wasn't like this is my year because I'm going to do this year. This is my five year plan, my ten year plan. I'm going to plan my progression as an artist like this and start going into more dramatic repertoire at the age of forty two. You know, with this role, <laughs> I never did that. So I sort of just let it happen, which is kind of not that good of an idea because I haven't been very well defined. What my, my, I ended up doing uh, modern opera pretty early in my career. Okay. And in um, 2008, I guess it was, I was asked to do uh, Stanley Kowalski in the um, um, Streetcar Named Desire in San Francisco, opposite Fleming. Right brand new piece written by Andre Previn. Um, and it turned out to be a really big deal. It was, it was really cool. And they had, they had, um, you know, news reporters from all over the world come to see this. They'd really publicized it beautifully. Um, and that sort of put me on the map as, you know, the, the, the guy who can do uh, modern opera really well and and acts well and and um, can do complicated music and bring something to it so it doesn't just sound like complicated music. Yeah. Um, and so that was like the first one. Now I've done twelve uh, new operas. My gosh. Yeah. And so as I was doing that, I did I did experiment. I mean, I had some very good management at the, uh, eventually and. Uh, I was with Matthew Epstein uh, really many years when he worked at Columbia artists and he was, he suggested, um, I mean, I, I wasn't happy with some of the decisions he made uh, or some of the things he insisted I should do. Um, I sort of made a foray into doing more dramatic repertoire, but I really wasn't ready. Technically mm. I really wasn't ready for it. And then like the modern repertoire sort of took over my calendar. And so I ended up doing like a few of the traditional roles, like, you know, the Count and, and, and Figaro, Barbara of Seville, uh, Cosi Fantute, first as Guglielmo, then as Don Alfonso, um, you know, and then doing Merry Widow and stuff, a lot of that lighter repertoire and a lot of modern stuff. I've yeah. done, I mean, I've done some really hard modern stuff like St. Francis of Assisi, which is a five and a half hour opera um, that's like, crazy difficult um i did that in amsterdam i did votan uh, the rheingold votan oh wow and a few years ago um so you know i've sort of run the gamut but i haven't done a lot of really big repertoire and they, actually not that much of the standard stuff like the big donizetti and more dramatic rossini roles in verdi i did don carlo a, a couple of times but it had never really followed up with that. Do you so, enjoy the the challenge of the new works? Do you do you really enjoy doing the new pieces more so than than standard? Or is it just how yeah. the chips have fallen? Do I like doing them more? I don't necessarily like doing them more. 
but I do enjoy the challenge of it. And actually, mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm attracted to with a new piece is there's no precedent. I've right. always been kind of intimidated, you know, like singing, singing Posa in Don Carlo. There's a precedent of great singers in the past, and yeah. they're all on record, yeah. you know. Yep. And you're just like, I, I don't think I can do it that well. I can <laughs> do what I can do, but how can I compare to Robert Merrill, you know? And, and um, so I always found that very intimidating. I always, I always put a lot of pressure on myself to measure up to the tradition and to the precedent. And um, so that was kind of disabling in a way. I couldn't just go out and do my own thing. There, there are uh, quite a few singers I know that are very confident in their own take on how to do something. Singers who will enter into repertoire they really should not be singing because their voice is not the right voice for it. You know, like big Verdi roles where they don't have a big Verdi sound, where it sounds like a lyric baritone trying to add heft to the yeah. sound. And, 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 and sometimes where they try to sing roles that are too low and they have nothing down there, but they just kind of courageously go through it and say, nope, this is how it's done. I've never been that kind of a that kind of a singer. Um, I've always been extremely uh, adherent to what's on the page and, and aware of, of the history, aware of the expectation for what the voice should sound like. And um, I mean, I've been asked to sing things like, um, like, uh, why is it not coming to my head? Like Scarpia. I could yeah. sing Scarpia. is not a high role. You could sing Scarpia. But do I have the requisite sound of the voice to really do it? Can I can I keep that kind of a, a snarly sound going through the whole thing? I could. I could do it in my own way. But would it mm-hmm. measure up to Tito Gobbi? I, I, I don't think I could. I don't think I... I mean, I just... I, my own awareness of my own belief in what the role should be mm-hmm. keeps me from doing it. I think that's contributed to keeping your voice so healthy, though. I mean, like people who hear you now are are blown away by how fresh you still sound. Um, I remember talking to Marilyn Horn after a competition in Music Academy, and she said she had a bunch of her colleagues had just heard you sing Don Alfonso and Cozy, and they were saying it's the best you've ever sounded, mm. which is amazing. So I think you not pushing into rep super hard and, and being so aware um, yeah. And, you know, I, you were always practicing before voice lessons at USC. So I, you're, you're constantly working on your instrument. And to me, that's inspiring. And I think says why you have kept your voice in such good shape all these years. So I think that's really a testament to your character. Singing, uh, teaching at USC for the past uh, 12 years, 11 years, has really made me very aware of my own technique, of course, because I am trying to teach it to other people. Yeah. And, and um, I think that it's had a... I think it's had a benefit, beneficial effect on on my singing. At least it certainly made me aware of what I want in my own sound and my own technique, uh, because it's the same thing I expect in other people's uh, yeah. technique and sound. So I think it's I think it's had a positive effect. I just wonder if I had taken voice lessons for twelve more years with some crackerjack teacher, where I, where I would be right now. Because the teaching is also really exhausting and time-consuming. That's what I was. I mean, that's what I noticed teaching for two years out there was. I always felt like teaching lessons was ten times as draining as rehearsal, just vocally yeah. and then yeah. mentally too. It's exhausting. So, did you did you find a rhythm, or did you eventually get to a point where it wasn't super taxing and you could you could teach all day and then still have some yeah. gas left? Yeah, exactly. I did. I remember my first year. I would, I would have no voice at the end of the day, partly because I was demonstrating constantly and <laughs> yeah, I, was yeah. demonstrating, I was demonstrating the wrong way as well as the right way. Mm-hmm. So that was really hard on my voice. Yeah. And, you know, I'd get a tenor who couldn't sing a high A flat and I'd go, <laughs> oh no, do it like this. And I would do it like, you know, 10 times in a row <laughs> and then suddenly like, wow, that took a lot of voice, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and then I discovered 
how to really back off, let them do most of the work, demonstrate more health, more healthfully for myself. And so I could actually still have some voice left at the end of the day and some energy left at the end of the day. Yeah. It's also tough, at least for the student teachers, maybe your situation was different, but we, we got a mostly new batch of students every semester. So like once you've built up rapport with a student, you can kind of sit back and you can give them a look and they'll know what they'll know what you want them to do. But a new student, you have to like go back through all the beginning steps and you do have to demonstrate more because they just don't know what they're looking for. They have no idea. No idea. That's true. All right. What have you been doing to have some fun, non-music related during this, this interesting year we've had? Well, you know, I had planned, I had all kinds of stuff planned. I was going to be, um, well, that would have been still coming up. Everything got canceled, you know, so I had yep. recitals and concerts and stuff that got canceled. So I suddenly had a lot of time. And even even though uh, in the spring, even when, when we got shut down by COVID, even though um, I was still teaching, I still had more time because I live an hour's commute away from LA. So every time I go in to teach and I have to account for traffic. So if I was going to teach at nine, I'd have to leave my house at six 30 in the morning to get there, to get there at time on time. Jeez. And you know, it was, it was, it was long days, brutal. And then, really long back, days. and then I'd drive back in traffic. I finished teaching at five, you know, what the traffic's like in LA at 5 PM on a weekday. And so then I'd right. often stay and stay an extra hour at least to practice, but you know, yeah. all the, Having gotten up at 530, I was already pretty much toast. Yeah. It was tough. Anyway, so this made that easier because, uh, you know, if I have a lesson at 10 o'clock, I can show up in front of the Zoom camera at five minutes to 10. Right. Now, we did make this kind of teaching online, though, has required a lot more time than doing it in person. It requires a lot more to make it effective requires a lot of preparation. So I completely revamped how I was teaching by having uh, written assignments every week and having my students, um, you know, assigning them particular vocalizes and things to record. And then they Mm. would send me, they send me videos of themselves um, singing. And then we look at them together, which is a great tool. Uh, Do you do that? Did you do that as a TA? Um, I did. Um, I mean, it was, it was your idea when we were working together was had to have them send me a video. We review it at the start and then move on. Because, you know, you can see a lot. If I were to sing for you right now, you could see exactly what's going on in here. Yeah. You know, and, 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 um, it's more, and then they can see as well. They're looking at a recording of themselves. You look at it together and you're like, you see there how you tensed your tongue right as you got to that be natural Mm -hmm. or, you know, you see how you're, you're, your posture's not good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's um, added to the time that it takes. I have to prepare for all the lessons much more. But fun stuff I've been doing, like um, we have this porch swing uh, in our backyard that looks out on our backyard. Wooden swing seats two people, two or three. And over the years, it's gotten sort of broken down. And I was like, I'm going to rebuild that thing. My wife's like, it's falling apart. Now the wood is split. And when you sit down, you get splinters. I'm like, okay, 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 I'll do it. How long is it going to take you? I think I can probably do it in a couple of weeks. Couple of weeks? That long? (laughs) Well, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And she's like, okay. So so it ended up being more like several months is what it it ended up being. But uh, like I decided, instead of having the bolts go through the wood and then supported by these chains though it's constantly bending and torquing and splitting the wood when you have two people on there and yeah. so i decided to make a metal undercarriage that supports the whole thing That's and my right. wife bought me a welder uh, a mig welder which is like a, an arc welding machine uh several years ago and i never used it and i always felt guilty about it and i'm like i'm gonna learn how to use that mig welder a mig <laughs> welder is one where you have an arc welder first of all an arc welder uses an electric current that a spark that runs between the welding object and this and this gun and that melts the metal but also transfers metal from in the case of a mig welder 
of this little tiny little welding rod that's on a spool inside of the machine that gets fed through the handle and comes out. And so actually the spark is going from this little rod or Peter as the case may be. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> to, to the welding surface and it melts it and transfers metal to it at the same time. And then you get a weld. Well, it's hard as hell. It's just like, it, oh, it's my God. It's, it's so precise. It already sounded complicated with the description and I'm sure it's even even more complicated when you actually have to put it into practice. <laughs> you have to keep the thing, you have to keep moving at exactly the right rate. You have to have the wire feed at the right rate. You have to have the right amount of voltage and amperage going in, in that spark, depending on the metal and the thickness of the metal. Mm -hmm. You have to, um, if you stay in one place too long, you burn right through the metal and, it, <clears throat> and then it's wasted. Uh, and, and then the hardest thing about it is you're looking through this welding mask the glass of which is so dark that if you hold it up to a bright sunny day, you can't see anything. It's good for looking at solar eclipses. You can actually yeah. use it for that, yeah. but you can't see anything until the spark starts, which generates such an intense light that it'll burn your retinas like that. Even if someone's arc welding across the street, you should not look at it because it oh puts gosh. out really harmful uh, ultraviolet light that's extremely intense. So it so the whole thing is lit by the spark, but you can't see the spark. So you've got this helmet on, you get it all ready to go, you get it all ready to go, and then you got to go and get this thing to go over your eyes, and then you're blind until the spark lights, but you can't move your hand in the meantime, or you don't get a spark, or you 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 start welding on the wrong part. Hard as hell, but I finally got it figured out. So were the months making this swing, was it, more learning how to figure it out. And then once you figured it out, it didn't take so long. Uh, both. There was a big learning curve with the welding. And yeah. then with the, I had to fabricate, I I replaced every single part of the entire swing, except for the back supports. So I was in there routing with my router. I was routing these, you know, the curvature shape for the seat and how the boards sit into it. Mm -hmm. um, I had to find the right thickness of lumber to do all this. I ended up buying redwood like beautiful, very beautiful, clear redwood. I hated to paint it when it was finally done. Mm. But then I needed to paint it because it's an outdoor outdoor furniture. And I went back and forth on that. I finally bought a paint sprayer mm. and turned out great. It's beautiful. Very but nice. Long, long time. Long, long are, time. Are you a handy guy in general? Do you, do you like fixing things when they break down on your own? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do like before I had a Tesla, because there's nothing to, there's nothing to fix on a Tesla. It's just got <laughs> batteries and motors. Before I went on my, uh, my previous cars, I did most of the work myself on my cars. And I fixed plumbing and carpentry and finished things and tiling. And right now I've got a, uh, part of my bartending thing, which I'll talk about. I have yes. a, a double kegerator in my, in my bar outside that stopped working. And I'm like, crap and i've had trouble with it before so it's on it's built in underneath the underneath the bar top which is tiled with this beautiful blue tile but when they built the bar they didn't get quite enough clearance and so to get the thing out i have to take off two rows of tile then pull it out do whatever i need to do fix it whatever put it back in and then retile it and so i spent a whole day rem carefully removing this tile because i can't replace it there's they don't make it anymore carefully no. taking the piece off. I finally got the whole thing out and I think I'll be able to repair it, but, um, a double kegerator. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. Well, a kegerator is basically a refrigerator for beer kegs. Could have guessed that much. <laughs> yeah. And a double, a double just means it's big enough to, 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 uh, it has two taps and you can put two, what they call sixth barrel, which is five and a half gallon, uh, kegs, uh, of two different types of beer in there. And then it goes, they have these, these, um, tubes then come out of the, it's pressurized with CO2 tank. Mm -hmm. And then the lines come out and go up into the tower, which I have mounted on the top of the bar with the two taps. So you have actual taps. So you're like, uh, oh, like yeah. you got a, do you have like a full, full service bar out there? Completely full service. Bar. Wow. A 70 pound insulated ice chest. I've got uh, hot and cold running water. 
I have um, um, the keg rate. I have a back bar. Like there, my bar was only 18 feet long. I didn't, it was really not quite large enough. <laughs> so for all the supplies, for all the supplies, the extra glassware, I have a glass freezer in a back bar that's about 10 feet long. And they and they're they're curved. They're, it's a it's a beautiful thing. They're just gorgeous. Um, so you're, are you gonna invite me for for a drink when everything opens back up? Oh, absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. Is the is the mixology bartending? Is this also a quarantine endeavor? Have you always been interested in the finer things in life? I've been doing mixology for a number of years, and it started a few years ago. I remember we went to a restaurant in Claremont, and they had a pumpkin pie martini on the menu and i ordered one i go pumpkin pie that sounds good i ordered it it was horrible it was it didn't i'm like okay this is drinkable it's sweet it has alcohol in it but where's the pumpkin and i asked the bartender what's this made with they go oh it's made with uh caramel liqueur and uh i don't know what else there's no pumpkin in it or at least if there was you couldn't taste it i'm like I could do better than this. And I started brainstorming, started brainstorming with Tina, like, what could we do? And, and she's like, you know, we, we could do actually use pumpkin pie and we could use like pureed pumpkin. And I was like, yeah, you know what? And so I invented this pumpkin infused vodka and, uh, you know, using like a spiced simple syrup and ended up using some melted vanilla ice cream. And um, what else is in there? Um, Sounds tasty. Oh, it turned out it's 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 absolutely delicious, topped <laughs> with whipped cream and freshly grated um, nutmeg, and <laughs> it actually tastes like a bite of pumpkin pie. And so I went from there to the apple pie martini, and that turned out just as good. And then we we used to have this so it it and sort of developed like that you know i was like hey i'm developing this new cocktail we'd all get together in the kitchen and say what do you think of this and they go yeah it's a little too sweet and i go okay hold on a second i make another one a little less sugar and they go yeah i don't really taste the apple i'm like hmm what do i do about that so i made a, a baked apple vodka um and then i you know just like tweaking tweaking along the way and finally ended up with this great recipe that everybody loves. And then I made, uh, I remember getting a cosmopolitan in a couple of different bars. And that's basically like a vodka lime cocktail with a little splash of cranberry. That's what gives a little bit of a red color. And I'm like, what is the red stuff? Cranberry juice. Oh, interesting. And I taste, and I go, I really can't taste the cranberry. They go, oh yeah, it's mostly for color. I'm like, I want to taste the cranberry. <laughs> and so I made my own version with freshly expressed cranberry juice, like take expressed. cranberries, put them through a juice expressor, use that juice. And it's really a cranberry cocktail, cranberry martini, but I call it the Rodmapolitan. <laughs> <laughs> when, when is the line coming out though? When's, when is your vodka hitting the shelf? Oh, it's not, it's not going to be commercially produced, but <laughs> I, I have a new YouTube channel, a uh, baritone bartender. No way. It's got all this stuff on it. I've got five cocktails up there now with its video, you know, so it's all the whole description how to do it. And I'm adding two more today. And I'm going to be adding um, to my YouTube channel, Baritone Bartender. I'll add another cocktail every week, usually wow. released on Tuesdays. And um, I don't know what's going to happen with it. But I can tell you I'm probably the most highly respected amateur mixologist in Rancho Cucamonga. <laughs> I, wouldn't that, kid about, I wouldn't kid about stuff like that that is a title that we all want to hold <laughs> absolutely yeah you, you know, uh, sorry it's taken you can't have it <laughs> well that's fantastic i'm glad you've found a number of things to keep you entertained um oh i have so i need to retire now so i can do all the things. <laughs> no actually i'm gonna i'm not i won't make you look at it but i'm gonna bring up my i'm gonna bring up my list of reminders here so I can tell you what I have on the on the docket. Let's, let's hear it. My truck. I need to repair the duct control light, um, uh, replace some resistors in the fan speed controller, and replace a headlight. My barbecue. I need to repair and seal the grout around the barbecue. Um, I need to raise the TV in our bedroom with a, a little like uh, a wooden something or other. Uh, fix the pool equipment hose rack. 
uh, put rubber feet on my grinder, make some oak uh, organizers for about five different drawers in our house. I'm installing a new faucet in the bar, installing in the bar freezer new fans and a vent door. I'm re-roofing my shed. I'm um, remounting our dishwater. I have to weld the cutting board runners on our under counter cutting cut. You get the idea. That might take you all the way until everything is back to some semblance of normal. Oh no, no. That'll this'll this is like a, a two year a two year limit. I'm afraid. <laughs> That's all I had to do. I could I would do it. Do yeah. you uh have, A, have you been still practicing voice at all? And B, do you have do you have contracts coming up in 2021, 22 and beyond? Yeah. That's a good question. You know, when COVID hit. I stopped singing. I was just like, everything got canceled. I'm like, what's the use? I had concerts with Renee Fleming that got canceled. I went, well, why, why should I practice? You know, I had a recital. I had a recital. I was, I was an hour from going to the airport to this big recital of Poulenc and Stravinsky back East. And they called me, they said, sorry, we just canceled it an hour before I went to the airport. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to practice that anymore. Yeah. So I stopped. I really stopped. And uh, I could feel my my voice getting weak and flabby, and it was it was not good. But I'm like, what's the point? I don't need I don't need to sing right now. So I really did stop. Now, on Saturday, this past Saturday, when we're recording, um, middle of January right now, uh, last Saturday I did record a recital that I was going to do at the Kennedy Center um, that uh, got canceled, but the presenter decided to record all the recitals uh, wherever the singers lived and present them on like a pay-per-view video stream. So I recorded that at the Doheny Mansion uh, in LA and I and it was a pretty big recital and with a lot of demanding stuff, really demanding stuff. And I had to work my ass off to get back in shape in order to do that well. Yeah, um, yeah. So I started, you know, working on that uh, a, a few months ago. Um, so I'm, I'm back now and I do have stuff coming up. Um, I want to point out that this recital was with a pianist who, you know, Peter Walsh, you know, Peter Walsh. Yeah. Right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, he did his bachelor's master's and doctorate at USC. Incre incredibly talented guy, yeah. pianist musician. Mm -hmm. And I chose him in particular for this recital because I wanted to present, uh, uh, some songs I do, some jazz versions of art song, French art songs. Um, two songs by Foray and one by Debussy that I, I sing the original version, then I sing the jazz version. It's really fun. They're really, really fun. And Peter's a really good jazz pianist. And okay. um, so he could do everything, you know. There are, not many, there are not many classical pianists who can also play jazz. I mean, like, yeah, no. count them on one hand. It's like two different brains for that. So yeah. different. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just did that and I got paid, you know, I don't think I've been paid yet, but I'll be paid for that. So a little <laughs> bit of income, tiny bit of income, mm -hmm. you know. Um, then what do I have coming up? In June, I have a job with the New York Philharmonic doing a piece by uh, Courtag called uh, Le Fin de Partie. It's an opera uh, that'll be done at Alice Tully Hall. Semi-staged, I guess, I haven't heard. Okay. I'm hoping that everybody will be back in, you know, be well enough vaccinated that we can actually do it. It'll be in June. And um, so hopefully uh, that'll, that'll be my next job. If it happens, everything else got canceled. I was going to the Met for dead man walking uh, oh, next, next month. And that got canceled. And I had more concerts with Renee Fleming. We do this really great piece called the brightness of light mm -hmm. by Kevin puts. And um, it's uh Beautiful for orchestra, soprano, and baritone. And we did it, uh, Tanglewood, we did it with the Boston Symphony, and we did it in, in Denver, and we did it in, um, where else did we do it? Denver and, I can't remember, we did it one other place. And we have it on, we had a lot, we have a lot of those planned coming up. We were gonna do it in Los Angeles this coming May, that got postponed, fortunately not canceled. Um, so anyway, I've got that thing in, in June with the, with the New York Phil. It's a huge project. And I'm actually planning on doing something. Uh, my my son-in-law, uh, Sean Slater, is a documentary filmmaker. And he's the one for my YouTube channel, 
the one who has been filming and editing all of my cocktail making videos. Oh, so and they they must look professional then. They look pretty good. Yeah, they look pretty good. They're still made with handheld cameras. We just use iPhones. Oh, oh yeah. Um, you know, um, we're we're sort of gradually updating the uh, updating the equipment. I think I'm going to add a lavalier microphone pretty soon to improve the sound because they're just in my kitchen, but you know, it's a little bit distant. Yeah. Um, anyway, he suggested I've got this this big Courtauld opera, Fin de Partie, coming up. Um, he said, you know, you should document your whole pre preparation of that whole thing. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to prep. I haven't started working on it yet. I've got six months. So I'm going to document the whole process of how I go about learning it, how I go about learning it, how to go about singing it, getting it in my voice, um, you know, analyzing it, figuring out the translation. It's mostly in French, that kind of stuff. Um, might be interesting. Probably very interesting. Uh, people yeah. like people do like seeing behind the scenes things, especially uh, from people who are proficient at whatever they're doing. Yeah, because you always see the final product, whether it's an athlete or a singer or anything yeah. like that, and you just see the final product. But it's really interesting to see the hours that that go into that tiny fraction yeah. of you know what that person's going through. Yeah, my wife and I've been watching The Voice. You ever watch that? Yeah, watch, I've watched. I've watched the show. Oh, yeah. Peter, maybe you should go for the voice. Uh, people have told thought me about that. it. I have thought about it. Yeah, I've thought. It. I would sing something like country, though. You know, I wouldn't sing opera. You'd have to. You'd have to do both. I that would that would you be know, exciting. You know the countertenor John Holiday. Yeah. Have you followed him on the Voice? Is he doing the voice? Oh, he did. He didn't win, but he came very, very close to winning. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, he would. When he first sang, they were just like, and all of them turned around, going, "Who I is mean, this?" And yeah. Kelly Clarkson was just like, "What? It's a guy because he's a center, <laughs> you know." And he was singing like this R and B and stuff and really high stuff, but with this uncanny tone. You're just like, "What voice is that?" Yeah. And I sang with him uh, in Eurydice in the mm -hmm. Opera production of, of the Eurydice. And when we first did the workshop, he would start singing. And I'm like, "What?" What, what is your voice? You sound like a countertenor, but then you sound like a baritone. What What's going on with that? Uh -huh. He goes, uh -huh. yeah, it's always been sort of my thing. You know? <laughs> anyway, you should to totally think about that. Any, in any case, um, so, uh, yeah, after that, let's see. Um, not sure exactly. I've got another job. Fortunately, I have another job at the Met next spring doing mm. um, Hamlet. Not the Tomas Hamlet. This is a new one that we premiered a few years ago at Glyndebourne. Um, um, it's a, a new modern opera, uh, Hamlet, by uh, Brett Dean. Terrific piece. And I sing the role of Claudius, the evil, the evil king who killed his brother. Perfect. Yeah. And it's a really good piece. Really good piece. Is that a baritone um, role? Hamlet's a tenor. And a tenor. My, yeah, my part's a bar bass baritone. Bass baritone. So I've got those things coming up. Uh, then some of our, my concerts with Renee have been rescheduled. I'll right. be in Houston doing Dialogues of the Carmelites a year from now, next December. Okay. You know, so things are coming back online. More yeah. you know, side of the stuff. Some things have been rescheduled instead of just being canceled outright. Like my uh, LA Opera concerts with Renee Fleming were rescheduled mm -hmm. for next year. So It looks like things... I'm... I'm not sure about summer. Uh, I'm hopeful, but I'm not sure about summer, especially because the U.S. is rolling out vaccines so slowly. But I think by fall, we should be okay. Like, I'm hoping to be doing a show at AVA in the fall, you know? Oh, good. Um, I'm hoping that will turn out to be the case. Do you know what it is? We don't know yet, but maybe, maybe Don Giovanni sometime oh. soon. Oh, my God. Maybe Don, Don or Leporello? I would be the Don. That's... Uh, Damn, that's what I'm studying now. That's what I'm studying now. That's amazing, man. Yeah, it's really, and I was, you know, I was intimidated first looking at it because it seems, it seems like it's high. Like I never thought of myself as a Don Giovanni, but it's no, it's really sitting well. I mean, the only tricky parts are like the the wine aria and and Deviani, um, but. I'm figuring those out too. And the rest, I mean, I've, when the voice is feeling good, I can sing through the whole role and not be sure. 
not be that tech. So I think it, it is really going to be a great fit. And it's probably the most fun I've had studying a role. That's awesome. I mean, it's it's just a it's such a fantastic piece. So you know, the the Fincandalvino, I think, is actually a little bit easier for a slightly lower voice. Really? Because of those those E flats where they fit are a little bit different, you know? Yeah, I just think I think it'll be great with that. Yeah, I I don't try to I mean you can the risk is that it just turns into a bark fest and like your mouth just at the top, but I've what I'm doing is is keeping it a little, yeah. I guess I'll, I don't know if I if I'd even call it covered, just like slightly into the turn, yeah. For all those little moments, and then at the end of it, it's fine. It's like, yeah, as long as I'm supporting well, it's fine. I found that I found that to be the hardest thing of the whole show was Finca Malvino, partly because it's so fast, and because everybody wants it so fast, and and they yeah. they want it to be frenetic, like Finca Malvino, and that's not good for your voice. No. no, I when I the first time I did Don Giovanni, I wanted to embrace the precedence and know what everybody else did. So I bought twelve recordings of Don Giovanni back before Spotify or yes. Apple Music, where you right. had to have a physical CD. Mm-hmm. And I've got them lined up on my shelf. Twelve recordings. Brrr, mine makes number thirteen, but. Um, it was interesting to see the difference in tempos of Finca Malvino. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the slowest one, I can't remember who, who was that Italian singer. was like, Finca Malvino, calda la testa. Maybe it was Sieppi. Probably Sieppi, yeah. Yeah, it was just like super like jolly almost, you know. And it sounds easy to sing it that way. Yeah. But conductors almost never take it that, that tempo. Nicholas no. Harnacore told me, uh, he said, this should be a little bit faster than you're actually able to sing it. And I was like, we're there, man. We're there. Please, yeah. can we slow it down? He goes, no, no, no. I like the, I like the feeling you bring to it. It's so, it's so like, Ugh. I'm like, oh my God, it's killing me. Yeah. You know. The role is a hard enough sing. You don't need to add that in there. Yeah. Yeah. Stay grounded. Anyway, it's been, it's been a joy. I'm just, I'm, I find myself laughing at the recits while reading through and, um, Oh, so much fun. So much humor. It's oh so, God. yeah, he's just so a great, funny. just a great character. Yeah. Such a fantastic character. character. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful we'll do that. I mean, they're, they're grooming me a little bit for it. Um, you know, maybe not next year, but everyone, yeah. when I first got there, uh, all the coaches were like, we don't like you singing any kind of buffo rap. We think you have a very elegant sound. We're going to start yeah. really throwing like bel canto rap and great. The more elegant roles i mean so that's that's really where i'm headed right now which is very exciting very exciting hey, I things ask, i want to ask you a question uh-huh about your own your own voice and technique sure um what you have done with all of these um uh these covers of these songs you know where you sing all the parts and you sing down to like g below low c <laughs> and up to high b's mm-hmm. higher in falsetto mm-hmm. um has that taught you about your voice Yes, it has expanded my limits and taken away fear of pushing myself <laughs> towards towards those limits. Um, yeah. the The super low stuff is just kind of a trick. It's called a chest fry, where it's like it's in your fry, but there's still enough control and power yeah. and resonance that it just kind of sounds like an extension. I think we might have played we played around with that when, in lessons occasionally. Yeah, um, but really the actually no joke in the last month or so um i'm making a big breakthrough in really in st- really uh, stopping to try to like micromanage everything so much cuz like a lot of my technique is settled now and if i can just trust it and really sing and lean into the singing then the voice opens up and i have five times as much endurance so that's how I'm able to sing, uh, like sing through the whole Don Giovanni in just a practice session by myself is because I'm just like, yeah. fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm going to sing it full out yeah, and, 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 re- and stay relaxed and just trust that my voice can do it. And my God, in the, it literally in the last month, like over winter break, I started experimenting and I'm telling you, the voice has just grown like crazy in just a few weeks. And, and yeah, I just find myself not worrying about it as much. That you know, even, so cool. even like having this, like if I, if we had had this podcast two months ago 
and we yeah. have been talking for an hour and a half, I might be yeah. a little worried about my coaching that's coming up because I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be a little tired. Now I'm like, yeah, my voice can handle it. Yeah. You know, the, the voice can handle so much if you let it. So, yeah, that's been a that's been a, a big discovery of me doing these covers and ex- look expanding my range and that kind of thing. Good for you, man. Yeah. That's amazing. I said I found for myself, too. Uh, and I, that was one thing about musical theater. It wasn't just a, a side gig where I used a different technique. It actually taught me how to sing my classical repertoire better. Yeah. Like, like at the end of um, the end of uh, Joey, Joey, Joey from The Most Happy Fellow. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. this long, sustained F natural. Mm-hmm. I was like, Joey, boom, Joey, Joey. I don't know if that's the right pitch. But it goes ba, and the the orchestra goes da ba 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 bum bum ba bum, and you're sustaining an F through that whole thing. Yeah. And when I when I did this, I did it at Ravinia, um, and I kept on working on that note, working on it, working on it. And I was like, I really want to start it with no vibrato. I want to start it really like piano, and then make a crescendo that gets bigger, 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 bigger all the way to the end. And I'm gonna let the vibrato loose right at the end. And I discovered I could do it really easily if I just like totally relaxed, kept yeah. it right here. Uh, and I would just go like nothing. And yeah. then it would, and every time I nailed it every time. And I was like, damn, I should do that for, for instance, the F naturals in the drinking song in the in the uh, chanson à boire, the Ravel. I should do that in the Toreador song. Yeah. I should do that. And I'm thinking all these F, big F naturals why don't I sing it like that, you know? And so yeah. I started taking that, what I learned from musical theater, taking it back into my operatic repertoire and and, going, and thinking, yeah, that's how I should be doing it. Totally it's really, sounds good. It's really interesting how that works. If, Of course, when you're starting out, you do have to learn, you have to learn all the fundamentals and you have to get your technique settled. But then mm-hmm. once you when the, once you have it, if if you can just relax and trust it, you know, the breath, the breath support is going to be there. And if you can just keep all this, you talked a lot about, um, what do you say? Being like a foghorn on the back of a ship, just this big column of sound coming out. Yeah. yeah. If you can just be that solitary unit, just, you sit yeah. in the air and it just, yeah. the folds just do what they do. Right. Man, that's, that's right. been money. So I've, I've been exploring that lately and it's been, it's been really, really wonderful for me. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All right, sir. I think I've taken enough of your time. I think we're actually okay. at about an hour and five or an hour and 10 minutes. Okay. Which is pretty amazing. Um, so um, it's been so good to talk to you. You and, too. Man. And really, thank you for thank you for coming on the podcast. You're one of my first guests and you're my first Zoom guest. So you have been, oh, yeah. you've, you've dove in right into the mix. This is the, yeah, this will be the first podcast I've done via Zoom. So um, okay. Well, I just want to tell anybody who's listening, check out my, my website, rodgilfrey.com. And if you check out rodgilfrey.com slash mixology, I've got my recipes there and connect and, and um, links to the Zoom videos. Or you can go to my YouTube channel, Baritone Bartender, and I've got a bunch of uh, cocktail videos on there. I don't know what's going to happen. Do I know what I'm doing? Uh, <laughs> I think I do most of the time. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm the first to admit that I don't know everything. I'll get I'll get all that information from you afterwards, um, and I'll put yeah. it in the description, stuff like that. Oh, perfect! That'd be great. All right, great. Okay. This has been super yeah. fun. Um, yeah, hopefully you'll come on again. Maybe maybe in like the summer. Sure. Like that you can come on. We can we can chat more because there's still there's still plenty of things we could talk about. Yeah. Okay, man. All right. Thanks Good. so much. Take care.